Hello, hello, and hello. hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? Uh, in today's show, oh my God, I have such an honor, such a privilege to invite Gary Hoover with us today. And if you did not know Gary, oh my goodness, let me tell you about him. Gary, he is a serious entrepreneur who discovered his love to business at age of 12. Oh my goodness. When he first discovered a fine, uh, Fortune 500 magazine, as a matter of fact, when I visit his home, Gary owns one of the original publications date back to 1930s when it just got started. Wow, how magical. So in Gary's professional life, he had found many, many success. In 1982, for example, he found a bookstore, Bookstop, the first chain of a book superstore, which later purchased by Barnes & Noble and was the foundation of their success. Uh, and as you can tell from the start, Gary has spent countless hours studying the great leader and learning from their experience, all the wonderful success as well as the failure in every single industry. And that later enabled him to start Hoover.com, the ultimate source for company information, providing company profile, corporate direction, all the wonderful things you need to know about the company, the market, all the things. Uh, which later betrayed at Nasdaq and later purchased by Dom and Bradstreet. Um, just name a couple of things that Gary have completed. And because of that, in 2008, Gary have received Distinguished Alumni Award from University of Chicago. And 2011, he was named a one of the 30 most influential people in Austin, Texas, the place to be, by Austin Business Journal. 2013, he was included, uh, inducted, sorry, into the Anderson Indiana School Hall of Fame. Oh my God, how many people can say that? So today, uh, Gary, as a speaker, business historian of Hoover Academy, executive director at American Business History Center. Uh, Gary is truly follow his heart one more time to share his knowledge, his insight to truly inspire and empower individuals to learn the lesson from the past so we can forge our journey forward. Oh my goodness. Without everybody, I am so beyond excited. And thank you so much, Gary. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Wen. That's a, quite an introduction. It kind of wears me out just hearing all that jazz. <laughs> oh, my God, Gary. Like We are just so, so, so excited just, you know, to see what you accomplish in your lifetime. Truly inspiring. So with that, you know, Gary, just, you know, let's jump in here. How do you, do you always know that you're curious? Like, how does that even, how do you 12 years old discover a Fort 500 magazine? That is, wow. Like, do you always know what you want at a young age? <laughs> well, you know, I don't, uh, I, I don't think I always knew what I wanted, but I, I grew up in this General Motors factory town, Anderson, Indiana, and a city of 60,000 people, 27,000 work for General Motors. And uh, the teachers are talking about leadership and management, about uh, kings and queens, generals, uh, governors, presidents, you know, the Civil War, who won the Civil War, who lost each battle and what their strategies were and who followed them and why they followed them. And 
uh, what their leadership styles were like and everything. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, that's cool stuff. I love the history and I love all the social sciences. But I'd ask them, well, you know, Civil War is interesting. But what about General Motors? You know, they're kind of the gorilla in the room or whatever you want to say. And the teachers would say, oh, they make Chevrolet, Buick, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, GMC truck, Frigidaire, Cadillac. I said, no, no, I, we all know all that. I said, but, you know, what were their reader, leaders like? Who started it? Why did they start it? Who are their leaders today? Are they smart people? Are they stupid people? You know, we may assume anybody runs a big company is smart, but we know from Enron and Drexel Burnham and the Bank of America and Wells Fargo and on and on, you know, cases, uh, Sears Roebuck, maybe in recent decades. Um, that they aren't always smart. The head of Enron, Enron was on the cover of Business Week magazine as the most innovative company in America. And then a few years later, the CEO is in prison and, you know, had an uh, MBA. The leaders had MBAs from Harvard or Stanford or great at business schools, but they didn't understand business. But anyway, it was driving me nuts. Nobody could answer my questions about uh, General Motors. And um, then I discover Fortune, the great American business magazine, Every spring or summer, they do a list of the 500 biggest companies in America, the Fortune 500. And General Motors was uh, twice as big, twice as profitable as any other company. They were the biggest employer. They were at the top of the list. Went running. My parents said, man, you got to get new subscriptions magazine. They're like, oh, you weird kid. You know, why don't you go play basketball like a normal Indiana kid? Anyway, I got my subscription. And two months later, I entered the seventh grade and I never looked back. I just, uh, there are... Um, a uh, few things, uh, if anything, that are more fascinating than uh, business, how it works, how these big companies are born, how they rise, how they fall, what decisions they make. Mm -hmm. It's a very human story. It's real people. Uh, it's a very competitive story. You know, people love to study uh, or follow, you know, their favorite football team. I'm a, uh, you know, I believe in the uh, University of Texas Longhorns, uh, hook them, you know, um, but uh and, and our baseball teams and all that jazz because they love the competition and business, you know, Coke versus Pepsi, Ford versus General Motors, American Airlines versus United versus Delta. These are all great competitions and there are scoreboards for them, but they affect a lot more people than a sports competition. You know, they affect jobs and, of course, all the customers and everything, uh, how we innovate, how all these great new products and technologies, how steam and electricity and the telephone and the Internet, mm -hmm. you know, and space travel, how they all come about uh, largely through innovation by entrepreneurs and the lives of these people, because it is such a human story. So and at the same time, <clears throat> over the years, uh, that was 58 years ago, I started subscribing to Fortune. I realized that not, not that many other people really study all that history and learn from it. Um, people and, you know, lawyers, they study history by definition. All they do is look at precedents and legal cases, whereas all the time I meet business executives, people even with MBAs and everything, that really don't have a clue about how we got where we're at. And yet, you know, Steve Jobs said, you can't look at the future looking back, understand the future looking forward. You got to look backwards. Winston Churchill said, the further backward you look, the further forward you can see. Uh, and, and other people have said things like, you know, if you are don't study the past, you're condemned to repeat the mistakes of the past. So mm -hmm. uh, so my my real focus and energies now go into uh, helping people understand business history through AmericanBusinessHistory.org, our website. We publish a free weekly newsletter. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got thousands of uh, subscribers and website visitors. Um, 
gotten a lot of attention recently. I've been on the, the History Channel on several companies, uh, have done a number of uh, podcasts and interviews, so our traffic is way up, but it's all free to the public. There's just a ton of stuff, um, over 100 weekly newsletters plus um, videos, charts, information about the growth of America, the rise of the cities and states and, mm -hmm. and fall, because there's always an arc there, a story. But anyway, yeah, so uh, uh, I fell in love with business and I fell in love with retailing and I've studied about every industry and every company I've been able to uh, look into, which is a lot, and, you know, accumulated this uh, massive library I live in with um, about 60,000 books now in my house, so, which is a little unusual, say the least. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Talking about unusual. I think nothing about you, Gary, is usual at all. Like starting at age of 12, you have this such a curiosity about the world and specifically the business world. And the fact that you really dive into devote entire lifetime, learn about those incredible lessons, you know, lessons learned in the past. And it's just tremendously, you know, inspiring. And I'm curious, uh, Gary, you know, age 12, you learn about business, you, you discover the magazine, see the insight. At what point you realize that is a path you want to be take? You want to be an entrepreneur as well. Is that, do you always know that? How does it come about? <clears throat> well, uh, yeah. When uh, So uh, soon after I fell in love with business, I fell in love with retailing. Um, my father had been a grocery store owner, but uh, was had sold that or gotten out of that business by the time I was, oh, gosh, seven, I guess. Um, but my mother loved to shop. She sewed all my sister's clothing and we would go to the big department stores and go to the fabric departments and stuff. Uh, but, and so when we went to Chicago, went to New York, we'd go to these great big, huge department stores. And I was just in awe of them. You know, they had these enormous book departments and I've always loved books, huge toy departments, you know, of course, all the clothing and everything, all the furniture. Uh, some of the big ones like Marshall Field in Chicago even had a whole section of antiques and paintings and things, uh, Macy's in New York, these giant stores. The big one in Indianapolis near where I lived was uh, Ayres, A-Y-R-E-S. I took the first time I was allowed to go on the bus by myself to Indianapolis. I don't know what I was, 15 or something. I went down and interviewed the head of the company or the head of the main store. So, and I started going around talking to retailers and managers. The big retailers then were uh, Sears Roebuck, JCPenney, Kmart talked to those managers, talked to independent stores, read every book I could get my hands on. So I just fell in love with retailing. But I should say at the same time, as obsessed as I am with uh, business and retailing and everything, uh, that I also, you know, my 60,000 books business is less than half of them. So I have a room on nature. I got the physics corridor. I love economics. That's why I studied in college. Uh, architecture is one of the biggest areas, urban studies. Uh, maps and atlases are my original collection. So it's pretty broad. But in any case, so, so I really, at 12 or 13, I wanted to run a big department store someday and, and thought I would work for a big company. And then over time, as I studied retailing more and later worked in it, I realized saw all the entrepreneurial opportunities there were. So I really was interested in big, big business first and then entrepreneurship, although I always realized they're connected because even General Motors that I'd spent so much time studying, you know, started as a um, not quite a small outfit. It didn't start in by his garage, but it started out much smaller and ended up. And the founder was, in a sense, very entrepreneurial uh, so that I was always studying the lives of the great entrepreneurs. 
the man that built uh, Time, Life, and Fortune magazine, Henry Luce. I read his biography. Read the biography of Sarnoff that built RCA that gave us the radio and television industries. And so uh, I, uh, my favorite was Walt Disney. I read his biography, all this when I'm 12, 13, 14. So, um, uh, yeah, so there was always a link, but it, it actually took a little while before I realized, oh, I really need to start my own company and not just, uh, and, and as I, w- I worked for three big Fortune 500 companies, and as I worked in them, I realized how narrow that pyramid is, that, you know, no matter how good you are, whatever, I mean, the attributes, the skills, all the factors that go into becoming the head of a division or a company. And, you know, there's a, a thousand, 10,000 of you, and then there's 5,000, there's 2,000, and then there's 20, and then there's four, and then there's one. And, you know, not many make it to the top. And I guess I always knew I wanted to run something uh, was in the back of my head. But, but I just loved studying business and the joy of it. I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard for me to become an academic but I wanted to be on the field of action rather than observer. It's another reason I've never really been much of a consultant. People ask me, have asked me many times and I dabbled in it, but it just isn't the same when you're giving advice and nobody listens to. And, and when I say being in charge, you, by the way, you aren't really in charge. The head of big companies have a lot less power than the journalists think they do. Because uh, you've got everybody that works for you. You've got all your customers. You've got all your suppliers. You've got your community. You're trying to balance those interests. Uh, you can't give everybody everything they want. Uh, I mean, you're, um, there are a lot of limitations and you have competition, you know, which that, which uh, kind of tell, you know, limits the prices you pay and affects the wage rates and all sorts of things. Wow. Wow. What a journey, Gary. And, you know, you talk about um, you will start reading book and get inspired. And at the time, you're working at Fortune 500 company, learning how business done in a bigger corporation. Um, and you mentioned you always know you want to run your own business. I wonder, I know you start many, many businesses since then. But the very first time, were you scared going to the business, given that you were at that moment, all your experiences in Fortune 500 or bigger corporation, right? Was that in your mind is like a no-brainer? I'm going for, I'm making this, you know, I'm creating this incredible venture, or how do you how do you see that fear at the moment? Uh yeah, and, and I should add in there. So uh, my friends and I, we had three little businesses while I was in college, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been I started my first like real company at 30. So eight years earlier. So we had gone, you know, gone through incorporation and dealing with lawyers um, in at least one of them, right? And uh, so, you know, it was just great fun. I mean, and what I realized, and even projects back in high school where I'd have an idea for a project for the whole school, Mm -hmm. and I realized, well, gosh, if you get the right people behind it, you know, you get a faculty advisor or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, you can dream up stuff and make stuff happen that didn't exist before you dreamed it up. And so it really is the creativity aspect mm-hmm. that has always, uh, I think, been the biggest driver for me mm-hmm. to uh, get into business. The idea that I could dream something up or dream it up with my friends, figure it out, take time. That first real business I started, I spent seven years doing my homework, doing my research, becoming wow. an expert on the bookstore industry before I went out and raised the money and convinced people to move with me and started in Austin, Texas mm-hmm. in 1982. So and, and the thing is, by the time I got there, because I really, uh, you know, I worked for my, the three big companies I worked for was a planned education process. 
I did it instead of getting an MBA or anything. I originally thought I'd get an MBA, but then I got tired of school and went to work. And then I loved it so much. So I spent two years picking stocks on Wall Street, uh, covering the retail industry as just a kid, junior analyst, learned a huge amount from the old pro that I worked for at Citibank in New York. At 22, I was meeting with the CEOs of all the major retailers in America. We were a big stockholder. So there I learned how investors, how analysts uh, study a company, any company, because uh, every day at lunch, I would go out to lunch with a different analyst from a different industry. Mm. <clears throat> so I'd go out with the woman that covered oil one day and the man that covered railroads the next day and banks and <clears throat> high tech and Procter & Gamble and consumer products. So wonderful learning experience there. And then I realized, well, I've learned after two years, I've learned what I can learn from Wall Street about retailing. So I uh, airfares are too expensive back then. I got a Greyhound bus pass. So you could 99 days ride a bus around America for $99. And I set up, I forget, 13 or 14 interviews to become a buyer for a department store. Because at that point, this was in mid-1970s, the best way to learn retailing in America was to work for one of the big department store companies. And I ended up with one of them and was a buyer. Not a great one, but I learned the importance of the job, how it worked, how the organization worked, how you planned advertising, uh, how you displayed merchandise and got really, uh, and again, was really blessed to end up working for some of the greatest in the industry and some of the best teachers you could find. Uh, took a pay cut to do that. Uh, and then um, after two years of that, another department store company hired me away. And there I worked in acquisitions, mergers, uh, planning, where to put stores, demographic studies. I have been fascinated by demographics, population trends, uh, all those kind of things, socioeconomic statistics. I've been, I love data. I've loved numbers since I was a little kid. And so, uh, and then I got involved in uh, the shopping center, the retail, the uh, real estate end of um, uh, retailing. So I basically, I learned to program computers in college, which I later used to write our own inventory control system for the bookstore chain. I learned how to pick where to put them. I learned about how you hire and fire people. I learned how you buy merchandise, select the merchandise, how you price it, how you advertise. Uh, even the legal end, I did that by going to a law school library nights at that last corporate job. So I had spent between those three companies, what, five, six, seven, nine years, I guess, eight or nine years, uh, getting my graduate degree, you know? and learning everything I need to learn. At the same time, I spent about seven of those years once I realized that the bookstore industry was where the great opportunity lie and the one that I was fit or, you know, appropriate for me, opportunity to grab and a business I would love. Uh, so, you know, I was really making hay while the sunshine, <laughs> learning and, and working. And, but I love the jobs. I never disliked working for big companies. I learned so much. But so I followed that path. You know, you have people like Michael Dell that drop out of college and never work at a big company. You have others that work for big companies for 10, 20, 30 years and then start a company. You see all kinds of patterns. But for me, it was my education. And, and the thing is, instead of an MBA or something, they were paying me. But, you know, you're talking about a really intense education at the May company, the big department store where I worked, the CEO would call me on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. and say, hey, Gary, can you come down and look at this with me? And I didn't even report to him. There were like four layers between him and me. But all those layers were happy as long as he was happy. And I loved it, man. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll be right down there. Let's go look at this. You know, I just love retelling. I still do. And mm -hmm. if you do what you love, you never really have to work. And that's a 
kind of an odd thing to say because you do as an entrepreneur or in a big business company, mm-hmm. you do have some days that are awful and you know, you say, why am I doing this? But they don't last that long if you, <laughs> if you're fortunate. Mm-hmm. Wow, so yeah. yeah, no, no. I, and, and so by the time I started the bookstore, I'd become an expert on the bookstore industry. I was an expert on American demographics. I was an expert on where in America the growth was and the opportunities were. I know I had to go to the Research Triangle in North Carolina, Madison, Wisconsin, Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Austin, Texas to make my idea work. Austin was the biggest, the fastest growing, had the weakest bookstore competition. Uh, I'd lived in Dallas for one of the department stores working there and uh, loved Texas. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, by the time I took the jump, I knew I knew that people were going to build these giant bookstores and whether I did it or somebody else did it. And that if I did it and it failed, it would be because of me, uh, because I knew the opportunity was there. And it was just it was in the cards when you studied the demographics. When you study the aging baby, when you study spending patterns over people's life cycle, everything I study, because as a startup entrepreneur, you're trying to look 10 to 15 years into the future. It's going to take you five, seven, nine years to get it really rolling and worth something. And then it's got to have legs. It's got to have a future. So I was sitting there in the 1970s trying to foresee the 80s and the 90s. And that's that's what I did. The average bookstore did about 400000 a year in, in uh, revenue. Uh, $400,000 a year in annual sales. We had to do a million to break even. We did 1.8 million the first year. And within seven years, we had um, like 24 stores, uh, California to Florida, and their average sales were like 3 million. And the old business model of mall-based bookstores, Speed Alton and Walden Books was effectively history. And uh, everything changed. And then Borders uh, rose up later as a competitor to uh, Barnes & Noble, whereas little more complexity than that, but I could give a whole nother talk about the history of the bookstore in America. Oh my goodness, Gary. Uh, I love that you're such a doer. I love that you always knew what you want and you said you take time to take you a grad school degree to learning different aspects of business and really get prepared for, you know, for the moment. And I think it's so incredible. Earlier, you mentioned, Gary, about you see people like, say, Michael Dell, other entrepreneur who just, you know, never work for corporate, just jumping because he actually had a passion. Or someone like yourself who in the corporate world and learn so much, have incredible uh, exposure inside working with the top executives, you know, in such a young age and, you know, gather all those that information and then start your venture. I'm curious, you know, today, Gary, you, you study so many leaders in history. I'm curious, what's your thought compared to different paths? And if you do it again, like, what would you recommend to, you know, today's generation or even next to come? Like, how do they think about those two paths when they think about their own um, entrepreneur journey? Uh, yeah, no, no, no. We, when all the classes I teach, we talk about that when every entrepreneur has a unique path. They are all over the board. That's kind of... Um, fundamental to entrepreneurship, you know, independence of mind, independence of thought, uh, uh, a real um, skeptical, you know, show me they don't, they don't believe what their friends say. They don't believe what experts say. They have to prove it, learn it for themselves. Uh, a lot of the things I preach and teach when I teach courses in entrepreneurship. Um, so, you know, we're all independent, independent-minded. And, and so you got to do what's right for you. And I, and, and I can tell you, I just talked to, uh, uh, was given advice to a person um, within the last week. 
and and suggested, uh, 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 oh yeah, yeah, I was teaching at, at the uh, UT campus. I meet so many people, mm-hmm. and I was uh, my first in-person class at the University of Texas at Austin. First mm-hmm. in-person class in two years because I was uh, doing Zooms before that. And, uh, you know, I ended up talking like an hour and a half to one guy after the class, a really smart guy working on his MBA. And he said, oh, I could not, he wants to start his own company, uh, which is, you know, not always true of MBAs. A lot want to go in the corporate world. But he just threw out. He said, well, I could, I don't want to work for a big company. I'd never fit. And I came back later in a conversation after I knew more about his goals in life and where his head was at and all that. And said, well, you know, maybe you should give that a little thought. And I gave him several good reasons that I thought he might benefit from working for a big company. I have another very close friend who I used to say that and never really convinced him. But I also like, look, it's your life. You know, I I always start out. I say, if it were me, but you're not me. So, you know, (laughs) let's make that clear. Um, So everybody's different. But I, I do think, I mean, one of the things that I see in, in the entrepreneurs is uh, when they go, they drop out and, or, you know, never work for a big company. The thing is, working for a big company, you learn, if you, first of all, you can learn a huge amount like I did. You're very careful in picking the best company to work for, you know, and, uh, or you get lucky and go to work for a, a great one and, and, and have great bosses or whatever something you believe in. I mean, I don't want people working for evil companies or companies whose values don't match their own, but you can, and a company in an industry that you're interested in becoming an entrepreneur in, that's critical, obviously. But um, you learn how big companies work. You learn how politics work. I I hate to use that word. I never really Mm -hmm. saw any politics in the big companies I work for, but seeing politics is a a matter of uh, the individual. I, a person and I could sit and work in the same company for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, they could say, oh, it's all politics. And I could sit there and say, I never saw any politics. Politics is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. People are people. They have ambitions. They have goals. But as far as like backstabbing and all the God, first, I didn't hear gossip. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't spread it, you know. But I never saw anybody backstab anybody. The companies that I work for, the hardest workers, the people who did the best jobs were the ones that got the promotions, you know. And uh, so maybe I was lucky, but I don't think so. There are a lot of great companies. But, you know, but you do learn. You do learn. Hey, if, if you disagree with your boss on 20 different things, well, you pick the one where you think you got a chance of changing their mind. You know, you pick your battles. You don't flare up on all 20 things and say, oh, you're idiots, you know. Um, <laughs> You learn how companies work, you know, because if you're an entrepreneur, the odds are very high that you're going to buy from and or sell to big companies. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to call on a big company, uh, you it helps if you understand, oh, gosh, the person I meet with is not the final decision maker mm-hmm. or it's his committee and they meet monthly or it's and having a sense or how all that works. And under understanding, for example, you meet people that really know how it all works. Um, historically, and I doubt this has changed much, in a lot of companies, the most powerful person is the administrative assistant of the senior executive, you know? And and so uh, I remember uh, getting to know a fellow who was the uh, editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal, but he was telling me stories about when he was starting out, and he realized that his whole system worked as a young reporter by getting to know all the secretaries, administrative assistants. And it was funny because he said when he became the head 
editor of the Wall Street Journal, he lost all his ability to contact people because he could call any CEO in America and they would return his phone call right away. But he couldn't really get at what he needed to know because he wasn't talking to the secretaries anymore. You with me? So, you know, understanding how all that works. So working for a big company can be very educational and a great deal of fun. And I loved it. I loved it. I never had a problem. I never was one of those people. Oh, I hate this. I got to have my own company. I I just knew in retailing, Mm -hmm. if you got the right idea, there are huge opportunities and you can demolish the big company. You know, Mm -hmm. the the Davids can slay the Goliaths because Mm -hmm. the advantage in a great, in a lot of ways, the advantage is always with the small, uh, agile, Mm -hmm. fast moving, innovative, you know, and we see it over and over in retailing. You know, there was no Walmart in 1961. Uh, um, there was no uh, Target in 1961. There was no Five Below. I don't know how old they are, 10 years ago or whatever. You know, it's a yeah. younger company. There was no tractor supply at some point. There was no Dollar General. And there were giant retailers. Mm-hmm. And people might have said, oh, you can never take on Sears. But now Sears is gone. Kmart is about gone, you know. Uh, so retailing, but the other thing too, um, just for what it's worth, a side thing that, that, that did occur to me is, you know, retailing, uh, uh, there are no patents, there are no IP, uh, doesn't require any fancy degree. High school dropouts can do it. It's basically understanding human nature and working with humans and working with merchandise products and stuff, which is pretty easy to grasp. And so, you know, it's intensely competitive. And, um, mm-hmm. and yet, uh, a lot of the greatest fortunes in the world came out of retailing. You know, if, the Wal- if Sam Walton were still alive, I, if he wouldn't be the richest American, he'd be right up there with Musk and Bezos and those mm-hmm. guys. And for a long time was the ri- richest person or his kids mm-hmm. were when he died. Uh, uh, when I looked at one point a few years ago, five, the top five fortunes in Europe were all based on retailing. Mm-hmm. And yet, no patents, no tech. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, there may be a few little patents here on procedures, but not much. Mm-hmm. And wide open, any retailer can understand everything about any other retailer. The stores are wide open. You can look at how they display it. You can find their prices. You know who they buy it from. You can figure out what they pay for it. Uh, you know what they pay labor. You know everything about them. You know it's an open book. So it's just fascinating. How can you create something and create great wealth? Although I don't think business is all just all about creating wealth, but that is one of the scorecards. And you know, so it's this mystery. And and yet, um, you know, a lot of really smart people, uh, uh, young people and the people I went to college with and everything, you know, they're becoming doctors and becoming lawyers. And these days, if they're going into business, they're going into high tech and you got to have an advanced degree and you got to understand all this jazz. Um, and so it, how do I say this nicely? It, it kind of struck me as well. It'd be fun to play the retail game. Because all these all these smart people are going to other industries, you know. I didn't know anybody else who said my life goal is to become a retailer. You know, they did they did exist, but um, no, no. A, 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 a fellow uh, Ron Johnson who helped build the Apple stores with Steve, Steve Jobs, he got out of Harvard Business School and went to work for Target right away. And he talks, you know, if you see interviews of him online. He talks about how weird it was. You know, his friends all thought he was nuts. Why would you want to go to work for a discount store chain when you can do a classy job? But um, and and there's different mindsets too about kind of the the level. Like I'm a discount retailer. I, I love Neiman Marcus. I got to know Mr. Marcus uh, uh, built it, and the uh, son is a friend of mine. 
wonderful. But I could never be in Neiman Marcus. You know, uh, that wouldn't be the kind of store I would create. Any great retailer understands, like the heads of Walmart can understand how good Neiman's is. The heads of Neiman, if they're good retailers, can respect Walmart. Unlike the average shopper who either, oh, I wouldn't be caught dead in Walmart. I go to Neiman's or, oh, I go to Walmart. Those people that go to Neiman's are nuts. A real merchant understands great retailing is great retailing. And it doesn't matter what you're selling or what price point you're at, rich or poor or whatever. Um, but uh, but I am I, I am always trying to find out how can I make prices lower? How can I, which is a, a great force in the history of American industry of Henry Ford, of Michael Dell. We go over and over. Even John Rockefeller lowered the prices of oil. Mm-hmm. So uh, a key to many great successes is how do I lower the prices? Uh, Toyota, uh, really Microsoft, when you compare them with IBM, what IBM was doing with mainframes and their software before Microsoft and Apple and the PCs all came along. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So, you know, back to your, your business, you know, Gary, you, of course, know this love and passion to retail and you start, you know, Bookstop, you start Hoover.com. And you just fascinated about, I feel like you not only want to win, but you truly want to serve our customers. You know, I'm curious at what point uh, you decide it's time to move on, decide to sell the business. And is that easy? Because at the moment, yeah, this right. is your baby. You're working out for years right. to come. You have so many long nights, weekends, all like, was it easy yeah. to let go? Sure. No, no, no. Well, I, I have to say, I always tell in my classes when they say, how do you know when it's time to move on? I say, ask another teacher, you know. I'm, I'm not the right, because I never believed that. I never did that. I never had an exit strategy in any business plan I've ever written and never will. And, and I have over 300 business ideas and I've written a lot and I had some aborted businesses. I had a big failure. So I've seen it all, but no, no, I go down with the ship. I only left Bookstop because I was fired by the venture capitalist. You know, uh, I only left Hoover's because I thought a friend of mine could do a better job running it and was better for the company. I only left Travel Fest, which uh, uh, I'm more than happy to talk about, where I lost all the money I'd made on the other two ventures because it failed. I was the one that turned off the lights and sold. I had a boom box on my desk and I went down the hall and sold it to somebody down the hall and locked the door and turned it off and I had to sell, um, you know, a, a biggest house on Lake Austin and sell the boat and because I'd borrowed against all that to try to save the company that failed. Um so no, no, I, uh, I I love the things I create. They're my children. And, uh, you know, if they go down, I go down with them. So, um, uh, yeah, no, no, I, um, you know, and, and, and when I see people with a business plan and it's got an exit strategy, I'm like, well, why do you want to get in it if you want to get out of it? This is going to take a huge amount of passion and energy and drive. And you're already thinking about selling it and you're just now starting it. I don't see why anybody would invest in that. Now, having said that, you know, they often come back and say, yeah, but I met with all the venture capitalists. They all want to know the exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, if you focus on building a great enterprise, if you focus on serving your customers, if you focus on creating something of value, something that adds value to the world, no matter what the enterprise does, then you're going to have all these opportunities of people that want to buy it or people want to take it public or, or keep it and pay dividends out. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Google never, you know, sold out, you know, Facebook never sold out somebody else, mm-hmm. uh, but you can sell out, you can take it public, but all those choices open up to you 
if you build a great enterprise mm-hmm. and and it's not on you know printing it up to uh, sell it you hear that kind of language sometimes with the venture capitalists but you know you got to understand it and when you take outside money the world changes and when you can own it yourself mm-hmm. or you and your friends or family and then the every you have to understand every investor's time horizon if you're working with angel investors they tend to have longer time horizons than venture capitalists Venture capitalist is going to want to be out of that thing in five to seven years, no matter what, whether you take it public or whatever. So, you know, understanding, um, you know, is it like with a loan, is it a 30 year mortgage or is it a six month credit card or whatever, you know, same with equity investors. So, um, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I never moved on, <laughs> you know, but then when you have to, you have to. So when I was fired by the venture capitalist from Bookstop, uh, it was time to go start Hoover's. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I would have preferred Hoover, um, actually both companies, I would have preferred, preferred they remain independent than sell out. But once you have other people's money, if the majority of the owners want to sell the company and there's a price, you know, on the table that people like, uh, there's no use in fighting that, you know? So I, I supported those once, once mm-hmm. they were underway, the sale of the two companies and, 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 uh, they both ended up in good hands. I think particularly, um, uh, Barnes and Noble ha- has done a great job. They they made changes. They added the coffee shop. They changed the name from Bookstop and Bookstar to Barnes and Noble. But they're entitled to do that. But they kept a lot of the great people that we had and mm-hmm. followed a lot of the uh, uh, principles and ideas and added their own and made it even better and rolled it out all across the country, which was my goal anyway. So mm-hmm. o- you know, overall, I was very pleased because that's not always true. A lot of times you build a company and it gets sold and the people that buy it ruin it. But uh, I think I was pretty lucky in both cases in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I think, Gary, you know, one of your superpower with your success is truly your dedication and passion and you in for the long haul. You are not just in for like two seconds, you're in the out. So I think that's truly uh, affectionate. You know, when the employee, when a teammate, you know, see you, they want to join your vision, the vision that you are building for the company, that you get the customers. And it's just so uh, incredible. So we cannot talk about success without talking about failure. And you earlier alluded to the travel fest. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how the business came about. Was it hard to lose everything? Was it hard to walk away the beautiful mansion by the lake house, you know, in Austin, Texas? Tell us all about that. Yeah, well, um, I love travel. I love geography. The core of my book collection are atlases and maps. I've been to 45 countries, 49 states. And... Um, I really believe, you know, we're a service economy now. Over 70% of the economy are services. And so over time, if I could keep starting companies, I I believe gradually moving away from pure merchandise more into services. And uh, because you're still a retailer, you're still selling. You know, I said I would love the airline or the hotel business. Hotels more than airlines because airlines, while I love airplanes, there's a lot of economic challenges to the airline business, uh, hotels, uh, you know, I love the restaurant business. I love services. Well, the growth of the services, as we look out the next 15, 20, 50 years, um, travel is going to rise, uh, education services, health services, financial services. Those, those are what book selling was in the seventies, eighties and nineties. You know, those are the big opportunities. And especially over time and, and after Travel Fest, I became enamored. And there are a bunch of buzzwords for it. I'm not fond of buzzwords. One's called edutainment. 
So that's combining education and entertainment. And I'm a bricks and mortar person. Uh, I love computers. I program my own software, you know, for the bookstore chain. I've been programming since college and all that, off and on or dabbling. Uh, but it's very two-dimensional. And I love architecture. I love freedom. And I love, uh, I want to see my customers face-to-face. So everything I, I want to do really is bricks and mortar. And I haven't been very successful when I've dabbled outside that in the digital world. Uh, so um, uh, the thing is uh, museums, children's museums. So my later ideas after Travel Fest headed that way. Well, Travel Fest was partway across that. I'd written an essay actually for a newsletter about retelling about kind of experiential retelling is the buzzword for it. But so travel, I believed in the growth of the travel business. And then I looked at it as an industry that was, gosh, how do I say it nicely, from a distribution viewpoint, from a marketing retailing viewpoint, was kind of a disaster. We have all these travel agencies. They're closed on Sunday, which is the second biggest shopping day of the week for a lot of store types, uh, like bookstores. They close at noon on Saturday. The peak of the retail week is Saturday afternoon. So they closed just as people doing discretionary spending. Uh, they had all these weird deals with the airlines about each travel agency tended to push one airline. Because when you pushed one airline, you got more benefits from the airline, more free tickets for your travel agents and stuff. And corrupt wouldn't be the right word, but just not a healthy system. But it was not putting the customer first. And I saw the short hours. I saw all these issues. You go into a travel agency. I'm thinking about going to Turkey. I want to see Istanbul. Well, but I've never been there. I want to learn about it. Well, there were no books about Istanbul there. And the travel agent never said, well, here's a good book you should read before you go. Or if you're thinking about going there, here's a book to read. Or here's a map. And it was just silly, you know. And, and so I explored there was a kind of a store in maybe Australia and maybe one in England, kind of. But the idea was a travel superstore. Long hours, customer first, not airline first. Um, full travel agency, cruises, hotels, rent-a-cars, everything, airline tickets. Uh, a luggage store, um, a language classes, a learning center, um, um, huge map store, travel books, travel videos back then. You know, it was still VHS at the time. This was the mid-90s. And so we opened, uh, raised some money through some very innovative, creative ways of raising money. Uh, 600 investors at $10,000 each. And yet we were still a private company. So very innovative. Did a lot of things that hadn't really been done before or successfully. Anyway, and opened this travel superstore in Austin, Texas. Our goal is called Travel Fest. And beautifully designed. It won Store of the Year Award from Chain Storage Magazine for store design. It won Travel Agency of the Year from the Travel Agency Industry Magazine. Our goal was to do $3 million revenue. The first year, we did $9 million. We did triple our projection. So the customers, it was mob. We, one night, we had to stay open until 2 a.m. But we were open like 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., seven days a week. Customer first. Here's your luggage. Here's your. You know, we're the only place you get a gift certificate. So you can give somebody a Christmas gift certificate, say, for $1,000. With that, they could buy a cruiser, they could buy luggage, or they could buy books, or they could mix them up. So it really was, and people loved it. You know, I still run into people see how much they miss it. And um, the thing is, the airlines stopped paying. We built two stores in Austin and one in Houston and raised total of maybe 12, 13 million. The airlines decided travel agents weren't worth keeping around, that they didn't need travel agents, that the, you should just go straight to the airline to book it. Well, that was actually jived with what I believe, because I believe that travel agents under the old system 
with short hours and not put the customer first, weren't really doing the airlines any favor. So I probably agreed with the airlines. Oh, you don't need them. But, uh, but my response was, let's create a better kind of travel agency, right? <laughs> well, their response is, well, let's stop paying the travel agents. And so it took like 350000 a year out of our cash flow. We were about to become profitable. We were on the right route. Everything was going the right direction. But that just, and I couldn't raise more capital. So I personally borrowed over a million dollars mortgage against my house to cover payroll, took myself off the payroll, everything I could to save it open. When the new Austin airport at the time in the mid to late 90s opened, we had a, a travel fest at the airport, you know, a license deal like you do with the airport operators, people run the concessions. At the same time, Travelocity and Expedia were starting up, but I was still on the board of Hoover's, which was a leader in going online. We were way ahead of the curve in terms of, so I understood online and I think I could have navigated that, but that added additional fear in the minds of investors. And we came like that close to big Wall Street investment houses about, we'll go raise money for you. And then it just didn't happen. And I, uh, I you know, lost all my money and turned off the lights. I didn't lose the books, so I held on to the books. Well, ultimately found a cheaper place to live and sold the house and paid paid down some of the money that I'd borrowed. But uh, yeah, no, no, I, you know, it, it it was certainly no fun. Uh, again, uh, probably getting fired at Bookstop was harder. Uh, I always say the way to deal, my own answer, how you deal with hard times is have a good sense of humor and have good friends. Those are really the two keys. But, you know, I mean, they're, they're probably no worse than when my dogs died. You know, so, you know, you, Aww. you live through life and life, life evolves and, you know, it, it isn't about what happens to you. It's about how you react to it. So you get up and you dream up another idea and keep moving on. I'm, I'm not really employable at this point by a big company. <laughs> Do you have any regret, Gary? If you have this magic one, if you will go back to time, how about that? Would you, would you change anything? No, I mean, the thing is you can't. So it's just so hypothetical. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, I don't believe in crying over spilt milk. I mean, you know, there are certain times I made bad decisions or, you know, said the wrong thing. And I wish I hadn't. But I think at my age, we've all got some of those. But uh, no, no, you know, you do what you do. You learn when you learn and you have your own characteristics. None of us are perfect. You've got your flaws. You know, you've got your blind sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have other areas maybe where you're a visionary or whatever, you know, <laughs> but there's also, you know, uh, every, Hey, uh, and in a big sense, every strength has a dark side, you know, mm-hmm. uh, every, everything that we're really good at, there's some aspect that comes out of that, that, that can hurt us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, being o- overconfident, Mm-hmm. Uh, self-confidence or self-efficacy is a better word if you look that one up mm-hmm. that that is critical to success mm-hmm. but then overcome you know that can also run you off a cliff and into a brick wall uh, who do you have around you are they yes people or are they people of independent mind do you support them when they disagree with you uh, and learning that because you know you when you're 12 or 14, you don't understand all that. But after you've run a few businesses or let led or whatever the whatever the right term is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you you begin to learn a lot about, you know, listening and not listening. And and it, it's still a crapshoot. I mean, you know, when I look back of all the times that I disagreed with the other leaders in my company and said, oh, uh, no, we're going to do it my way. 
half the time I was right and half the time I was wrong. And if I look back at all the times when I said, and everybody disagreed with me, and I said, okay, you're right, we'll do it your way. Half the times I was right and half the times I was wrong, or, or close to that, you know, mm-hmm. at least 60, 40 or something. So it isn't like, oh, every time they, I disagreed with them, they turned out right, or every time I overruled them, I turned out wrong or right. No, no, it's, you know, may, maybe you can figure out, well, when I was dealing with finance, I had a better batting average than over here, or whatever. But, you know, I say entrepreneurship is a lifelong journey of self-discovery. You are always learning about yourself. You're always learning about uh, um, the organization and other people and how they work and how they think, how they're motivated, what it takes to motivate them. Everybody's got different goals. Some people want titles. Some people want money. Some people want everything. Some people don't want much. Some people just want to be listened to and respected. And everybody's a blend of that. And, um, And then technologies, you know, I didn't see Amazon coming. I didn't see... Uh, the internet coming, very, very few people did. You know, Bill Gates didn't see all that either. So it would have been interesting if I had been able to hold on to Bookstop, what what I and we would have done. Because I th- I think um, if, if I had had majority stock control, which I was far from, I had like 6% ownership time that was sold to Barnes & Noble. If I had had control, I would probably still have the company today because I really, really love the bookstore business and I really love books. So I'm guessing, and but how how I would have reacted to Amazon, I should give that some thought if I had time. But but now my project, which uh, you can make case is the most important uh, project I've ever embarked on, more important than Hoover's or Bookstop, is the American Business History Center, and that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one, uh, it's a 501c3 nonprofit, so it'd be hard hard to fire me, but uh, um, harder to uh, to sell out because you can't really buy a 501c3, not easily. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a labor of love. So it doesn't really take any compensation. I mean, I get a little money once in a while. It'd be great if I got a little more, but I would do it even if I never saw a penny. Um, so uh, yeah, no. And, and it will have a friend of mine emailed me and kind of pointed this out just uh, yesterday or day before saying, you know, this is, this is the most lasting thing uh, you've ever created. And the one that will have the most impact on society more than the bookstore Hoover's and everything. So uh, it's just another venture, just another project. Tell us about the impact, Gary. So what do you want to leave this planet with? Well, you know, I mean, and, and you know, there, there are a lot of things when you phrase it that way. So before I lost all my money, I gave my beloved University of Chicago where I went to school, a place I deeply love enough. They built a dormitory and named it after me. So that'll be around a long time. A beautiful thing. Um, and it's it's half a building. It's not a whole building, but it's what they call a house system. So it'll it'll be there a long time. And then, and then all the students and all the people I've mentored and worked with, thousands all over the world. I've seen thousands of business plans. So the extent I can have an impact on them and their enterprises and their lives, and hopefully make them more successful with my advice, you know, and all that. So you know, there's there's a number of ways, but. The reality is nobody was really looking at business history. There are some academics. There are some books that come along. The same guy that wrote the book about Hamilton wrote a book called Titan, the life of John D. Rockefeller. Mm. Um, But if you Googled business history or American business history, it it was a wasteland. You know, any any subject, any rare breed of dogs or type of bird or uh, unknown city in Siberia, whatever. You Google it, you'll find websites about it, every subject. But business history, you know, if you Google it, 
there'd just be, oh, there was a seminar last year at Harvard or, you know, here was this mm-hmm. book came out two years ago or whatever. It's, there's no real website, no hub, no it's nexus, a place where people could go for information and learn about it and study it with links to other websites, links to museums, book recommendations, videos. And so we have a lot of ideas. We've just been going two and a half years, but our focus has been doing the weekly free newsletters. We just had a uh, contest, a high school uh, student write an essay, the history of a local business. And we will, uh, in the next two weeks, announce the winners. First prize, $3,000. Second prize, $1,000. Third prize, $500. And we're just now finalizing all the judging. We'll announce that soon. So because we want to reach young people, we want to get in, create curricula for schools, uh, um, you know, uh, supplemental reading or in addition to economics courses. So people learn business history. Uh, we want to get to business managers and leaders, all those people with or without MBAs, dropouts or what kind of PhDs, I don't care. And, and for them to get interested, leaders to learn the lessons of the past and get ideas. There are uh, relatively few big companies that really have a sense of history that understand they can learn from their own history to the degree that I think they should. Some dabble in it. But, but on the other hand, like Procter & Gamble and John Deere, both founded in 1837, they both have corporate historians in effect. And, and that just takes them to a whole nother level. And maybe that's part of the reason they've been around 185 years or whatever it works out to, you know, mm-hmm. um, and maybe around another hundred years <laughs> because they actually, they look back at what did we decide in 1948 or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and what did we learn from it? So if we can do more of that, it, it costs our society billions of dollars to not learn from history, our business society. You know, we got historians, we got political history, we've got military history. Come on, you know, those generals, they study Sun Tzu and, you know, uh, the big European guy's name that wrote all the books and uh, strategist um, Clausewitz, something like that. Anyway, you know, other people study history to get good at what they do. Business people don't. And that's got to change. And the thing is, I'm mean, always looking, what's the opportunity? What's the vacancy? What's the gap that needs to be filled? And then what's the right person to do it? When I started Bookstop, first thing I did was found the best book buyer in the country to select the books. And I found a great bookstore manager. And I, and I took my skills, which are more financial analysis and everything, and raising the money and put us together. Well, to be blunt, I am the right person to do the business history thing. You know, so I'm kind of the ideal person at the ideal time on the most important project, uh, most important for me, and I think contribute to the world. So, uh, yeah, no, and if we can build it up over time, the challenge will be uh, uh, I won't be writing the weekly newsletter forever, and I don't want it to die when I die, you know. So the challenge is to find other writers, and we may have to raise money because they may not be willing to work for free or dirt cheap like I am. And, and, and it'll take training because to do what I do on those weekly newsletters, the free newsletter, I mean, it's 30 or 40 hours a week. And there are all kinds of things that I understand that very, very few other people, uh, they just haven't been researching and studying uh, this historical stuff and how to track down the truth and how, how to read a, a speech by a business leader how to understand what took place in the meeting, how to read a financial statement as an older one, how they change from the day, uh, things to watch out for, you know, companies change names. You know, people think, you know, we got this company, AT&T, 
And some people think, well, they bought the old Southwestern Bell. Well, no, Southwestern Bell bought AT&T and then adopted the name. And so there are all these things that I know from my years of studying history, the little potholes on the road to getting it right that a lot of people would fall into. Um, I see mistakes and misspellings and stuff like that in books every day, you know, and I work real hard to avoid those. I mean, you can't be perfect. And when I find a mistake I've made, we fix it as soon as we find it. But we work really, really hard to get the history right and to really have a, a, a good kind of comprehensive, uh, mm -hmm. holistic understanding of business history. So for people to do what I do every week now, uh, I'll really have to work with them and train them and show them all these tips and things to avoid and what's to watch out for and all that jazz. But yeah, no, no, no. I, um, you know, at times it's work, but as long as you love doing it and I love doing it, uh, we'll keep cranking them out every week. Mm -hmm. And people seem to love them. Our traffic has just taken off recently because of all the History Channel TV show and all that kind of jazz. Yeah, we will make sure to drop the link below so everybody can follow Gary, check out the Great. newsletter. And Appreciate I just love, that. Of course, you know, Gary, I love so much passion and so much dedication on what you do and share what you learn with the world. So today, the last question to you is, you know, Gary, you see, you know, centuries of business. You see leaders rise, leaders fall. You see business come and goes. So with, you know, today, you know, so many entrepreneurs, you know, or new founders kind of starting their journey, what would you tell her or tell him? What would be, I know there are so many lessons we can take, but what are the top one or two points that you wish maybe you knew when you started a business and what would tell today's entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, you know, I've made speeches and I actually wrote a book about it. I have another website called Hoover's World okay. and it actually has um, an article, uh, Entrepreneurial Thinking Made Simple or Made Easy, which mm -hmm. goes through it. But also uh, there, if you click on the books and classes, I teach classes, but I also a book called The Art of Enterprise, only available as a PDF. But that basically, but if you have one of my business cards, which I know you do, on the back of it, it has my eight keys to building and leading successful enterprises. So the first thing is be curious. Second thing is study history, study geography, how things and, and all that stuff. I've referenced the book and I'm going to go into all the details on this. Then create a vision or a mission. I use them interchangeably. That's clear, plain English, no jargon, no buzzwords, and, but it's specific, not generalized BS. A, a mission or vision that's clear, it's consistent. And once you figure out what you're really good at, what you want to do, you stick to it. Clear, consistent, that's serving, that above all else makes life better for the customer. Uh, and it's unique. Uh, by nature, great enterprises march to their own drummer, have their own rhythm. I was on the Board of Directors of Whole Foods Market for four and a half years. Very eccentric organization in a lot of ways. Most great organizations are, in a sense, eccentric. But that's all spelled out in all my books and everything. And then the eighth and last thing is to be passionate. And find something you love to do. Because if you're just doing it for the money, the odds are you won't have enough stick-to-itiveness. The minute you hit a bump in a road, I was speaking at a panel once on the university campus at uh, Texas. And somebody said, well, I'm starting a company and I want my best friend to join me, but he's got a job at a company and he's getting well paid and I'm having trouble convincing him to quit because he's the ideal person to be with me. How do I convince him to join me? And I said, you don't, because if, if he's that anchored in the security and the big corporate deal or the money or law firm or wherever he was, he or she, I remember all the details. I said, when you hit the bump in the road, they're going to be first to leave, you know? 
Uh, well, you're going to hit bumps in the road. You're going to have awful days. There were times when I had to call my investors and have them Federal Express checks to cover the payroll. I had my CFO go around all the stores and empty the tills, the cash registers, to get money in the bank so the payroll checks wouldn't bounce. Because if we'd waited for the overnight cash drop, payroll checks would have started bouncing. You see all kinds of stuff, man. Michael Dell almost went broke a couple or three times. R.H. Macy went did go broke two or three times. Henry Ford was fired by from his own company twice before he got it right. So, you know, um, uh, you got to love it. You have to really believe in what you're doing. And, and I really believe in doing the homework and becoming an expert in the field you're going into. Study every aspect of it. Talk to everybody. You see all this stuff where, oh, I want you to sign an NDA. I want, oh, I got such a brilliant idea. Everybody's going to want to steal it. So I can't, it's just bullshit. You know, I mean, no, your job is to convince the world you got a big idea. You're nobody. That's your ego at work. I, I almost never sign an NDA. I've heard venture capitalists say that that's a sign of an amateur when they show up and want you to sign an NDA. There are times if you have an idea for a movie and you're talking to the Disney company who's known to love to borrow ideas or you got a software breakthrough idea and you're meeting with Microsoft. Yes, do an NDA. But when you're showing me an idea or investors don't want to run companies, venture capitalists, they only run a company when it's a disaster and they have to take it over. You know, they want to have the right person running it and they want that to be you, the initial investment, um, as Steve Jobs. And, and I learned that can change over time. But, um, you know, start with curiosity and, and put serving others. How do I make the world a better place? How do I find a customer? Peter Drucker, who everybody should read if you're interested in business, you know, he said the uh, purpose of a business is to create a customer. How do you create a customer and create something that somebody's willing to pay for that you love doing? And when you got that working and coming together, and then if you work at it every day to make it better and better and better, always improving your product or service, never relenting, focusing on that. I remember reading an article about a guy who raised millions, a company failed, and Later, he said, well, why did it fail? And he had a couple or three failures. So we didn't put enough emphasis on product. We were spending more on marketing or on fundraising. Or, it's crazy. All you got is your product or service. And, and that's where everything goes. That, that's the whole story, you know? I mean, if you're a shoe manufacturing company, your life is shoes. It isn't about money and it isn't about, you know, it's about shoes. And if you make the best shoes on earth, and give good value in them. I don't care if you're Nima Marcus or Walmart, you always got to give the customer good value. They mm -hmm. always have to feel like they're getting their money's worth. And and um, then you can, you know, there's sky's the limit. People are always going to need shoes. And if you have the best shoes in the world and people love them and, you know, ask Nike. Now, now you get big company, it becomes somewhat more complex. Nike is as much about emotional and swoosh and sometimes <laughs> politics and everything as great shoes. But I can show you certainly to get where they got, they had to make some pretty good shoes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much, you know, Gary. Well, thank you, Wen. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, no, thank you so much for your time, your insight, your beautiful wisdom. And I just, you know, felt truly just so inspired by 
Not only you share passion, but your dedication truly makes the world a better place. Whether it's you know through the business you are building, or today share your wisdom with the world, and you know all the lessons you learn through your own personal experience, all the highs, all the ups, all the downs, everything between with such a transparency, with tremendous you know vulnerability, you know share in front of the entire audience. I think. I truly just so inspired and I learned so much from you. So thank you so, so much, Gary. And thank you everybody for tuning in today. We so, so appreciate your time. We hope that you enjoy as much as I did today because if not now, when? If not you, whom? Go start your business and go make this world a better place. We will see you guys next time. Bye, guys.